Howdy, everyone, and welcome to the Feast of Trumpets. It's a pleasure to be able to give this message to God's people and to myself. One of the things I enjoy about giving sermons is sometimes I'm speaking to myself as well. Uh, these are messages we all need to hear, in particular at this time. God, in His wisdom, has given us the same holy days every year. He doesn't just reboot the holy days one year and suddenly come up with a whole host of different holy days. He gives us the very same ones because the lessons involved in these holy days, he wants us to take in, to make a part of our nature, to make a part of our bones. So they mean something to us. So they plunge deep as opposed to just some sort of shallow level of understanding. And so welcome to the Feast of Trumpets. And we're going to jump right in. If you would turn to Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23 is sort of one-stop shopping when it comes to so much about the holy days. We have God's holy days listed there for us in Leviticus 23. And we're going to read about the Feast of Trumpets. In Leviticus 23, starting in verse 23. Then the Eternal spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the eternal. <coughs> now, it stood out to me for some time. Trumpets just seems a little unusual. If I imagine being an ancient Israelite as opposed to a modern Israelite. And I think of each of the holy days. To me, trumpet stands out in a particular way. You know, when it comes to trumpets, what's going on, right? With Passover and with the Days of Unleavened Bread, there's a certain history to it. There's something they're demonstrating why you're doing those days. There's an anchor in history to a certain extent. Uh, when it comes to Pentecost, there's a harvest that's involved. And uh, I, I can imagine being an ancient carnal Israelite and making some sort of sense of that. If I look ahead to the Day of Atonement, there's this sacrifice for sin. There's definitely an interesting ritual with the other goat. But still, there's an understanding that we need to be cleansed of our sins and, and become one with God. Uh, there's also the Feast of Tabernacles, also related to a, a harvest. And then sort of a wrap-up with the the eighth day, the last great day. But trumpets is just a memorial of the blowing of trumpets. And I've wondered sometimes, as perhaps a young carnal Israelite, would I wonder why? why? Why is this day set aside just for blowing trumpets? Really, trumpets were blown over every offering. Why is there a day set aside specifically for the blowing of trumpets? And I've taken the time to think about what would be the associations that I would make with trumpets if I were, say, a young carnal. I mean carnal as an evil, just simply not guided by the Spirit, uh, Israelite. The word there for uh, trumpets is teruah in Hebrew. And it's an interesting word, and we'll see that in the context of how it's used and how trumpets are associated with different things as we go through the sermon. But it's a word that can have a variety of meanings. If you want to look it up, it's Strong's 8643 uh, of the Hebrew words. Strong's isn't always the best resource really to understand what a word means. It's not exactly the, the purpose of a Strong's concordance. But if you take that number, 8643, uh, so many different foreign, uh, sorry, Hebrew and Greek resources 
are keyed to those Strong's numbers because of the work they did indexing all of these all of these different words. And it's interesting if you see that, you'll see that it's associated, uh, teruah, this uh, blowing of trumpets, is associated with sounds of alarm and fear and terror, but also with joy and excitement and positive things. There's so much packed into that particular concept of the blowing of a trumpet and the the clamor that's associated with that. I'll just look at uh, one more verse. Let's look at Psalm 81. Psalm 81. And there were different kinds of trumpets that were used in Israel. We'll see that over the course of the sermon today. But I want to make sure I bring in uh, this one in particular in Psalm, Psalm 81. And if you haven't read Psalm 81, you'll at least probably recognize this from a hymn that we sing. It's a great blessing in God's church to have hymns that are rooted in the Psalms. In Psalm 81, it speaks uh, in verse 1 and says, Sing aloud to God our strength. Make a joyful shout to the God of Jacob. Raise a song and strike the timbrel, the pleasant harp with the lute. Verse 3, blow the trumpet at the time of the new moon, at the full moon on our solemn feast day. You know, it's interesting the timing of things in these fall festivals is that trumpets happens at the beginning of the month, which is what new moon means. We get month from moon. And then tabernacles happens there in the middle on the 15th, associated with a full moon. So the word there for trumpet is actually the word shofar. And again, there are other trumpets used by Israel, and we'll talk about that. But I want to bring in particular the idea of a shofar. You know, sometimes on holy days in various locations, if we have someone who actually knows how to blow a shofar, which is one of those hollowed out animal horns, usually a ram's horn. It's been hollowed out so you can blow it and it makes this amazing piercing noise. And so sometimes we'll have a church member or someone who happens to have one, you know, just blow it. I've never been able to blow a shofar successfully. I've tried to imitate it with a cardboard tube from a paper towel roll, which some people have done. It doesn't sound quite as glorious as far as I'm concerned. But we don't do that on the Feast of Trumpets as a matter of the law because blowing the trumpets was a part of the Levitical service. And that's that's something that's not commanded of everybody was something the Levites were to do. However, it is interesting if you've ever heard it blown because it is piercing. It just demands your attention. So the Feast of Trumpets is described by God as a memorial of the blowing of trumpets. So the question is why? Today's sermon is going to be very basic. I want to just go through the heart of the Feast of Trumpets and just answer the question, why trumpets? Why is there a day set aside with the blowing of trumpets? Why are trumpets involved in that? What are we supposed to learn from the fact that trumpets are associated with this high day that we're observing today. And so the title today is Why Trumpets? Why Trumpets? There should be a question mark at the end of that. As the managing editor, I feel responsible for telling you. So Why Trumpets is the title of the sermon today. And before I jump into the ancient world, let's talk about our modern world. What is the equivalent of the trumpet sound for us? It was very different for Israel when you have various people would assemble for the army, et cetera. There, there's different things we'll see. But we do have our natural equivalents. And the one that I'll mention <clears throat> right now was important to me or 
made a difference for me or made the same kind of impact on me that the shofar blast or did for ancient Israel. And that is our emergency broadcasting system on our televisions. Now, that's probably an archaic relic for young people today where you'd have some sort of broadcast on your television in an emergency, but you would on broadcast television, for those who still have that, if there was some sort of emergency, like a weather emergency or something, your television would change. All of a sudden, you'd be watching some sort of program, and then it would get interrupted immediately with this terrible noise, this just, I don't want to imitate the noise because it would make for a terrible sound on, on DVD or on a video, but you would hear this awful noise, this tone that would just demand your attention. And you look at the screen and then you would see information or you'd hear an announcement that perhaps there was a tornado in the area. Nowadays, we get the equivalent on our, on our phones. I'm connected to certain things. And if there's some sort of alert, then within an area, they can actually send a signal to your phone and your phone just starts making this piercing noise that just demands you take it out and take a look at it to see what's going on. But the ones that grabbed my attention the most, believe it or not, weren't the TV, even though they're in my room and couldn't have been the cell phone when I was a child because we didn't have cell phones. Now, some of you that are younger might think that means we rode around on dinosaurs and such, but it, believe it or not, it wasn't that long ago. The one that got my attention as a young man were the citywide sirens where we would have somewhere in the city there would be some loud horn of some sort that if there were a tornado in the area, because I did grow up in Texas, in the United States, and tornadoes were a very real fact of life. Went through many tornado drills as a young man, have actually you know lived through just a few uh, tornadoes, thankfully uh, nothing really damaging, but that can happen. And you would hear this sound, these loud sirens, that would just broadcast in such a way that your whole city could hear them. And it arrests you, and it grabs your attention. And it's meant to be something to grab everyone's attention and warn them that there's something dangerous in the area. Well, back then, in ancient Israel, these trumpets were the equivalent of that. You couldn't send a note on everyone's pagers. They didn't even have 1980s technology back in ancient Israel. You couldn't send everyone an email. You couldn't send them an alert on their cell phone. But what you had were these trumpets, not just the shofar, though the shofar, the ram's horn was one of them, but also, as we'll see, some silver trumpets that were made specifically for some of these kinds of events. And they would blow these trumpets to get everyone's attention for some particular purpose and just merely knowing that fact even though we'll get into the details here in a moment we see that the feast of trumpets if anything is meant to be a time when god is trying to get everyone's attention when he wants all of his people really as we will see all of the world to attend to some sort of fact or facts trumpets are meant to be attention getting and so if anything, the Feast of Trumpets signifies the fact that God wants people's attention and wants to point them to something. So that said, what I'd like to do here in the first portion of the sermon, most of the sermon really, is to go through a few examples of what was God getting their attention for? For what reasons were trumpets blown in ancient Israel? Or a little broader than that, when an Israelite would hear a trumpet, what were the sort of things 
that would run through the mind of an ancient Israelite. So first, let's take a look at the fact that a trumpet was a sound of warning. If you are an ancient Israelite and you hear a trumpet, it was a sound of warning. It was meant to warn you at times of something. Uh, let's turn to Ezekiel 33 for an example of that. Ezekiel 33. We read in Ezekiel 33 about the watchman. God had set aside Ezekiel as a watchman for the house of Israel. Now, I don't want to depart from the flow of the sermon too much, but we have to understand that in prophecy, this isn't pointing to ancient Israel. That Ezekiel was set aside as a watchman for the house of Israel, but Israel was already in captivity. That really, as a watchman, if he were a watchman for ancient Israel, then it would be as if you were sounding the alarm that there is a tornado in the city when the tornado has already come through and homes are destroyed and, and buildings leveled. It would be too late. Ezekiel's warnings are for our day. Let's keep that in mind. But still, that said, let's just look at the passage and see how trumpets are associated with warning. Ezekiel chapter 33, and I will start in verse 1. Ezekiel writes, again, the word of the eternal came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of your people and say to them, When I bring the sword upon a land and the people of the land take a man from their territory and make him their watchman, when he sees the sword coming upon the land, if he blows the trumpet and warns the people... Then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, if the, if the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself, but he who takes warning will save his life. This is really the equivalent of hearing the tornado alarm go off in your city and not taking shelter. Not going to find the safest place you can in your home or finding a storm shelter to get into. And what God is saying is that if that happens, if we sounded the alarm and you didn't take cover, well, you know, your blood is really on your head. You didn't respond to the warning. Verse 6, <clears throat> but if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet and the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any person from among them, even one, he is taken away in his iniquity. That is, he is still taken away in his sins. However, he says, verse 6, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hands. So I wanted to read a little more than perhaps I need to to make the point about this, that trumpets are a sound of warning. Because if you'll allow me just a, a slight side trip here in this sermon, this is our task today. We must be blowing the trumpet. It frustrates me here and there when I will hear word of how some here and there who will mention that somehow the work isn't supposed to happen today, that maybe resources are harder to find in the world. Some organizations I hear about here and there will say that, that we shouldn't be warning the world, that we need to focus on somehow feeding God's people as if you can feed God's people and not be doing a work. Those two things are tied in an intimate way that I don't want to get too distracted in discussing today. But when I see Ezekiel 33, I can't 
fathom how we are not supposed to do some kind of outward focused work to warn the world. It, it really is unfathomable. You know, people will debate, well, are, are we really Ezekiel? Is, you know, maybe Ezekiel's commission was just for Ezekiel. Even ignoring the time difference that I mentioned earlier, even ignoring that, what is the principle in Ezekiel 33? That if God has shown us that there are difficult, terrible things coming on a world because of its sin, and if you know it, and if I know it, and we are aware that these things are coming, and we do not make every effort to warn that world, blowing a trumpet, as it were, then God says, you know what, they're still going to suffer for their sin. It's still going to happen, but I will hold their blood accountable to you. You will be accountable for that. And I, I don't mean you just specifically watching this, but all of us whom God has shown, if we do not make a passionate effort to put this warning out to the world, God will hold us accountable. I cannot fathom anyone claiming to speak in the name of Jesus Christ who sees the things this Bible says and says somehow it's okay for us not to do some kind of outward work. That is absolutely, fundamentally ridiculous in ways too profound for me to take time in this sermon to talk about. That is the words of the devil. If someone tells you that we do not have a responsibility as God's people to go outwardly to the world at this time, that is the lie of the devil, even if that person is saying so completely sincerely. So please keep that in mind. Back to the point of the sermon. Trumpets have a purpose of warning. God always associates that here. It's meant to get people's attention, in particular, to warn them that something dangerous is coming. So you can imagine being an Israelite and just hearing the trumpet sound. And what does that mean? It's meant to call to attention. It's meant to warn. So one of the more generic purposes of a trumpet is to serve as a warning. Another purpose of trumpet blasts is that they're sounds of action and movement. Trumpets were used to tell Israel that it was time to get up and it was time to do something. It was time to, to gather together. It was time to, to regroup or to go somewhere. Uh, we'll see an example of that in Numbers chapter 10. We'll see actually a very specific example of that. We won't read the detailed instructions, but God is a God who does things decently and in order. And when you're dealing with a large people wandering around in the wilderness, that definitely takes some effort. In Numbers chapter 10, <clears throat> starting in verse 1, we're not going to read the entire chapter, though it, to me it's interesting to do so, but just for the sake of the sermon, we can start in verse 1. Numbers 10 and verse 1, we read, And the Eternal spoke to Moses, saying, Make two silver trumpets for yourself. You shall make them of hammered work. You shall use them for calling the congregation and for directing the movement of the camps. When they blow both of them, all the congregation shall gather together before you at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. But if they only blow one, then the leaders, the heads of the divisions of Israel shall gather to you. And I'm not going to read all the different directions it gives here, but it's really a structure in terms of what you're supposed to do based upon the way the horn is being blown. Is it just one blast? Is it two blasts, etc.? The point is, 
there were instructions coming. There was going to be something to be done. If you heard, you need to be prepared to act in some kind of way. And these were not shofars like, like some of the examples we'll talk about. These were hammered out silver trumpets that were used for this purpose. And it was examples like this that, and, and we actually see this being used in the world. I, I tried to put together some procedures for camp related to this back when I directed one of the preteen camps. But we see it here and we see the same procedure done in a lot of other places where you have large camps. Sometimes you have something coming, a danger to your camp that is a storm of some sort. And you don't want everyone to come together out in the open. You want them to go, you know, hide in the closest place they can that is a safe place to be. Other times <clears throat> you need everyone to come together and you need them to come together quickly for some kind of cause, perhaps to give emergency instructions. So we actually had in our manual for a number of the years where I directed one of the, the preteen camps, we had an air horn and there were rules there in terms of what to do if you hear the horn once or if you hear it twice. Thankfully, we never really had to deploy that because I, I think it would have been difficult uh, on, in a camp environment. I used to think to myself, well, we have a storm. Where is there a place to go? A lot of campgrounds don't actually have storm shelters. So we would talk in our orientation about what some of the possibilities were and, and actions people could take. But we used an air horn for that. And so we'd keep in a particular place next to our uh, extreme weather radio uh, that would pick up weather warnings. We'd keep the air horn there in case we had to use it. Well, God used the sounds of the trumpet to direct his people. And if they heard a particular blast, they were all to gather together for instructions. If it was a different kind, if it was you know, a different number, well, then it was only the leaders that would come together. But again, that's something that was associated with trumpet blasts. And that's what we're doing in this part of the sermon, is reviewing some of the things that for an Old Testament Israelite, they would have associated with trumpet blasts. A trumpet generically indicates some kind of warning. It's meant to get your attention. But it could also, from these particular trumpets, indicate that it was time to move. It was time to get up and go somewhere. It was time to, to gather. A third aspect, and this is a bit more specific than just simply the generic warning, though it is related to that, and that is that trumpets were a sound of terror and war. Trumpets were a sound of terror and war. We're actually already in Numbers chapter 10. Let's take a look, because these... Silver trumpets were used for war purposes as well. In Numbers chapter 10, down in verse 9, God tells the people through Moses, When you go to war in your land against the enemy who oppresses you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets, and you will be remembered before the eternal your God, and you will be saved from your enemies. Now, it's not somehow just the power of the trumpet that will somehow save them from their enemies, but he's saying, you obey my directions. I will be with you. I'll be there as well. In a sense, I wouldn't say you could put it this way because God's there. He's the one who's commanding the attention. But when the people would gather together, in this case, for purposes of war, God was gathering with them. God was planning to be a part of that action. And it's not just ancient Israel. Trumpets have been used for purposes of commanding armies in war in multitudes of countries, in multitudes of eras. And 
I actually find some other passages that connect me to more of the real life sensation of what it would be like to hear such a trumpet in other parts of the Bible. Uh, let's turn to Amos chapter 3. Amos chapter 3. You know, Amos is one of those books that some people worry they can't find quickly in their Bible, so I'll give you a little more time to find it, because it's sometimes a book that we don't turn to as often, perhaps. I was really blessed just a while ago. I just opened my Bible literally right to Amos, so you wouldn't know if I would have a hard time finding it or not. So Amos chapter 3. Let's take a look at the statement there in Amos 3 and verse 6. We read in Amos 3 and verse 6, Thus says the Eternal, For three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they took captive the whole captivity to deliver... Wait, I'm sorry, it's chapter 1. I'm sorry, chapter 3. <laughs> so excited I turned to the right book immediately and then I went to the wrong chapter. Amos chapter 3, starting in verse 6. Amos 3, verse 6. If a trumpet is blown in a city... Will not the people be afraid? You know, this is a rhetorical question. Amos isn't asking this, or really God using Amos to ask this. It's a rhetorical question, meaning the answer is a given. He says, if a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people be afraid? The answer is yes. Yes, the people will be afraid. It is, there's, not, there's not a question as to what the answer actually is. Continue in verse 6. If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people be afraid? If there is calamity in a city, will not the eternal have done it? This verse leapt to my mind back in 2001 on September 11th. And it was a difficult time for those of you who happen to remember. In fact, many of you even not in America might remember the images on your screen and, and feeling your own personal reaction. Even though it wasn't your country, it moved so many across the world, what we were watching live as it happened. And for those of you perhaps who have been born later, we have seen you know, so much time has passed. I would encourage you, it's worth the time sometime to sit down and watch perhaps one of the documentaries that goes through that. There's YouTube videos that have tried to, to put the events together. So that if you haven't seen them, you can try to think about what that was actually like. And this verse leapt to my mind, if there is calamity in a city, will not the eternal have done it? Doesn't mean that he's directed the planes into the buildings, but it does mean that it's happened under his watch. That he has allowed this to happen. And it's supposed to get our attention. And I remember when September 11th occurred... I couldn't help but think, because it was in the neighborhood of the Feast of Trumpets, I couldn't help but feel like I was hearing a trumpet, not a prophesied trumpet of the seven trumpets, but like I was hearing a trumpet, that God was trying to get people's attention with that. Continue in verse 7. Surely the Lord eternal does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. A lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord eternal has spoken, who can but prophesy? He's trying to attach to this, this sense of fear, this sense of, of trembling, because what has come upon a people? 
When he talks about when a lion has roared, who will fear? Well, we're thinking of going to a zoo recently, and I hope we hear a lion roar, but I have to be honest, I'm probably not going to be afraid, as long as there's bars or something between me and the lion. But back then, it was far more possible, you know, if you recall, Samson encountered a lion, it was possible to actually hear a beast with your ears, a man-killer within an approachable distance. And I say approachable, not like you would go to him, but because it might come to you. And the idea that something that would eat you alive is making a noise in nearby would be a terrifying sound. And he's relating that to this. Again, verse 6. If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people be afraid? In this particular case, it's the ram's horn, that piercing sound of the ram's horn. That's actually not my favorite verse in terms of communicating these emotions that are associated with the hearing of a trumpet, these sounds of of terror uh, and the fear of war and destruction. Uh, My favorite passage there would be in Jeremiah chapter 4. If you'll go to Jeremiah in chapter 4, because I just feel that Jeremiah really, under inspiration, of course, pours some of his own emotions into that, which he would understand in a way that perhaps we don't. Jeremiah chapter 4, and we'll start in verse 19. Jeremiah 4 and verse 19. The prophet begins, Oh, my soul, my soul, I am pained in my very heart. My heart makes a noise in me. I cannot hold my peace because you have heard, Oh, my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. The picture that he's painted there is something that you hear that noise and you can't think of anything else. It just fills your thoughts. It fills your mind. And you ache down in the core of your life, your very soul. That The trumpet just demands your attention and fills him with fear. Why? Because he heard the sound of the trumpet. Verse 20. It says, Destruction upon destruction is cried, for the whole land is plundered. Suddenly my tents are plundered and my curtains in a moment. How long will I see the standard that is the banner that an army would be carrying and hear the sound of the trumpet? It was just a terrifying noise to him. And again, this is something that's hard for many of us in the far more, at least for some time, peaceful West. Emotionally and psychologically, it's not very peaceful and we know that things are coming. In the United States, I remember when the first Gulf War took place, and then later the next Gulf War took place, that a lot of us just watched some of it on our screens almost like it was a video game. We would see footage of these strikes by missiles and bombs and tanks. And it's not, when I say a video game, I don't mean like we were completely emotionally detached, but at the same time, there was not that kind of guttural, instinctual, in your bones and in your flesh sense of exactly what was going on. When you would see a car blow up or you would see a building blow up, there was no connection with what was actually going on in that building, which was that lives were being destroyed. Families were seeing their loved ones shredded by shrapnel. And again, I don't want to go into all the details, but speaking like Jeremiah does, 
it was very personal. Back then, it wasn't a matter of weapons of mass destruction or watching on a video and hitting a button and making something explode and fulfilling your mission. It was a matter of someone with a sword or a dagger coming into your tent, coming into your house and murdering everyone in the building. It was very personal. After the trumpet would follow the screams of terror and they would get closer and closer and closer as the source of that terror approached you and closed the distance between you and something that you never really want to face ever in your life. And yet there it is. And the way Jeremiah communicates those emotions to me is just remarkable. So when I hear about the Feast of Trumpets and I hear about the use of trumpets, I tend to think of Jeremiah chapter 4 pretty frequently in these days. All right, let's look at the next point I want to make today in terms of the trumpet, a far more positive one, if you will, a little more uplifting. And that is that trumpets were also at times the sound of deliverance and freedom, deliverance and freedom. Let's look at Leviticus chapter 25 for this. It's been kind of rough the previous discussion. Let's look at something a bit more positive, a bit more uplifting. Leviticus chapter 25. And verse, start in verse 8. It says here, And you shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years. And the time of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be to you forty-nine years. Then you shall cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the month. On the day of atonement you shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all your land. Now, I don't want to get ahead of us. We're talking about the Feast of Trumpets, and this does bleed into the Day of Atonement. But it is important to notice as well that even when something fantastic is happening, God wants to use trumpets. It's something he wants to declare from the sea to the mountains that freedom has been brought to a people. The Day of Jubilee. We were talking about this actually just uh, yesterday. I think uh, one of our young men was with his mom was in our home. Just Actually, it was just last night, now that I think about it. And we were talking about this idea of what it meant to have your land given back to you after being burdened by debt for so long. Again, I don't want to go into it too much. And if this is new to you, this idea of, of freedom from debt, you know, at the end of seven years, I highly encourage you to study it. It'd be a wonderful thing to study leading up to atonement, which is coming on the heels of the Feast of Trumpets. But essentially, you have people that perhaps have been burdened by debt, difficult times, have come into service of others because they've lost control of their land for whatever reason. Perhaps they had to sell it to get them through some difficult times. Maybe they were maybe they were sick. Maybe they just simply made some poor choices. But then you have the Jubilee year come, and things are restored. Your land is restored to you. Your debts are forgiven. And what an amazing experience it would have been to have been one of those oppressed people struggling under the burdens that perhaps you created or perhaps just simply happened to you and you could not control. And you long to hear the sound of that trumpet and knowing that as it's ringing in your ears, what it means is you are finally free. That freedom is no longer just a hope, that it is a reality. What a remarkable thing. And what a 
contrast to so many of the other things that can be associated with the sounds of trumpets. You know, it's interesting. Jesus Christ came to declare some of that. If we go ahead and turn to Luke. It's an interesting passage where Jesus Christ had an opportunity to read something on the Sabbath. He was a Jewish man. He was standing up to read from the Scripture. And it says in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16, it says, So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. Verse 17, and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. Now, to me, it's fascinating that he didn't turn to that, or he didn't necessarily request Isaiah, as far as we know. He was handed this particular uh, scroll. And it says, he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. And this is what he reads, starting in verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, right there, it says, verse 20, he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue began, uh, were fixed on him. Verse 21. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What a moment that would have been. And just uh, how many people would have thought, who does this man think he is, which of course he was going to be showing them over the next several years. But what was he quoting from? He was quoting from Isaiah 61. Let's turn there <clears throat> to Isaiah 61. And let's read the passage from the New King James translation of that passage that he was reading. Isaiah 61, and we'll start in verse 1. Here it says, Isaiah 61, starting in verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord eternal is upon me, because the eternal has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the eternal. Now there is where Jesus Christ stopped reading. And he was doing those things at that time. He was going to begin this, he had this ministry where he would be doing those things as a picture of the ultimate fulfillment that was to come. But he stopped there. Notice where he stopped. Because the verse continues in verse 2. And the day of vengeance of our God. Now notice he didn't say that that scripture was fulfilled. In his initial ministry, his first three and a half years on earth, he did do these things, but he didn't bring the vengeance of God. He will do that in these times that we are talking about on the Feast of Trumpets, when he is bringing uh, these plagues and this destruction associated with these trumpets. So I just thought it was worth a, a side note there. But I know why does he do that? Why does he want to do that? Why does he plan to do that? Why is it on the schedule? 
because he wants to do the other as well. He wants to take what he did in the first three and a half years of his work, of his ministry, if you will, and then eventually spread that to the entire world. The whole point of that vengeance is certainly punishment and justice, uh, but also a restart to the world, rebooting the world. I like to think of it as, some of you remember the toy of uh, an Etch-A-Sketch. Some of you remember Etch-A-Sketches. They were an unusual, I never really could grasp them. I couldn't do much with them, though I know people that are very good at them. But it was a rectangular toy with sort of a, a screen, but not electronic back in those days, but with some sort of me- silver metallic dust. And you had two knobs, and you could turn the knobs, and one would control the vertical, one the horizontal, and you could trace them through the silver sort of sand material and draw pictures using those two knobs. It's called an Etch-A-Sketch. But if you messed up or you didn't like what you drew, well, the way to erase it was to grab it and just shake it up and down. And it erases the garbage that you had, that you had drawn when you were trying to draw something beautiful. And what I see here when it comes to the events pictured by the Feast of Trumpets is that God is essentially shaking the world like an Etch-A-Sketch because he plans on starting anew, just erasing essentially the, uh, let's just say the drawing uh, that mankind has put on this earth for 6,000 years. But why? So he can draw something beautiful. So he can bring this other side of trumpet blast. So he can bring the liberty. So he can bring the freedom. So he can bring the joy. Really much like Passover at the beginning of the Holy Day cycle, the festival cycle. Trumpets is also that mix of somber and sadness, but also a certain kind of joy because they each have a role to play in the things that these days picture. All right, we just have two more examples before I, I want to move on to what's prophesied to happen. In terms of what an ancient Israelite would associate with the sound of trumpets, another thing that an ancient Israelite would associate with the sound of trumpets was the presence of holiness. The presence of holiness. And let's turn to one of my favorite examples of that, though we won't just look at that one. Turn to Exodus chapter 19. I've said to several that part of me wishes someone like a Steven Spielberg I'd say a George Lucas, I have mixed emotions about that, but someone who can command truly powerful digital effects and have them under their command. And just take Exodus chapter 20, 19, 20, and put it up on the big screen and try to do it right. Actually listen to the Bible and what it says and try to paint for us some sense of what that spectacle of the Word, uh, the God of the Old Testament, descending on Mount Sinai and giving the Ten Commandments to the people and what it must have been like and what it possibly could have looked like. And then there's a part of me that says, that's probably one of the last things I want Hollywood to grab hold of because it would just get butchered like so many things do that they do. They, I was excited when the movie Exodus came out with Christian Bale and others until I saw it and realized, well, this is... This is a lot of garbage. So the other part of me is glad that Hollywood hasn't chosen to depict Exodus 19 and 20, at least in all of its glory. But in Exodus chapter 19, we have the setting where they are preparing to hear the Ten Commandments. We're just going to just read a few spots in Exodus 19 because I want to discuss that trumpets 
and shofar blasts and such can be associated with the presence of holiness. In Exodus chapter 19, we read, starting in verse 3, it says, And Moses went up to God, and the Eternal called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel. And I won't go into the detail here, but he explains to them that he wants them to be a holy nation, a kingdom for him. And they are to prepare over the next three days to meet their creator. He's giving them instructions that they were going to gather together there at Mount Sinai, not on the mountain. He makes sure that you don't even, you don't come close to touching this mountain because it's going to be holy. And if you do, you will die because I, God says, will be on the mountain. And he tells them in verse 11, uh, tells Moses to tell the people, let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the eternal will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. So let's jump down to verse, let's see, oh here, verse 16. We read, then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Now this isn't just some fellow, an Israelite blowing some sort of shofar. This was coming from the mountain and the word there for trumpet does signify a shofar. And so let's continue reading. It says, verse 17, And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the eternal, the God of the Old Testament, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ in glory and majesty, though obscured by smoke, as we will see, because the eternal descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, just powering off the mountain. And the whole mountain quaked greatly. You know, when you think of mountains, there's a reason that certain insurance companies like Prudential and others have, have picked things like mountains or the Rock of Gibraltar. Some of these solid masses of rock to indicate something strong, something with foundations that will last, something permanent. And yet even one of the most permanent symbols that we can decide upon that makes sense to us as a good symbol of permanence on the earth in the presence of God even the mountain was shaking before the presence of its creator verse 19 it says and when the blast of the trumpet sounded longer and sorry and when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder Moses spoke and God answered by voice I always find it fascinating personally. They don't tell us what Moses said and what God said. But in my mind, I've got this whole scene detailed. And of course, one day I look forward to asking God and finding out what actually happened. Hopefully we'll be able to even see it and experience it like some sort of hologram. But I imagine Moses saying something like, you know, eternal, are you here? Lord, are you here? And this voice coming from the cloud and the fire and the shaking mountain and the sounds of these trumpets just saying, I am, which would be a very appropriate thing for God to say, and the sound just rolling over the people. Well, that's the fantasy part in my mind, but the real life part is the presence of trumpets. Trumpets herald the sound 
They, they, they act as a heralding sound for something important. In this particular case, the Holy One of Israel, who was arriving on the mountain. God showed up accompanied by fanfare. And it says shofar. I don't know if the angels, if there's some sort of the equivalent of a ram in the angelic kingdom or something. But regardless, from an Israelite sound, this was a shofar sound but a shofar sound like no other, it's sounding louder and louder so that a mass of hundreds of thousands of people were able to all hear it and became louder and louder. Here we have an example of a trumpet blast accompanying the presence of the divine, a trumpet blast indicating the presence of holiness. And there's another more mundane example I want to take a look at, but to me, equally fascinating for different reasons. Let's actually go to Second Samuel in chapter 6. Much later in the history of Israel, Second Samuel in chapter 6. Second Samuel and chapter 6. And in verse 1 we read, Again David gathered all the choice men of Israel, uh, 30,000. I won't read all the details, but essentially they're bringing the ark back to Jerusalem. And there is a, a, a time, or they're bringing the ark to Jerusalem. It's a time of rejoicing, a time of, of just glorying in God and what he was doing for Israel. And the fact that the ark, which really pictured in a very real way the throne of God himself, his presence symbolizing that, it's really, in a sense, like his earthly throne, again, in a sense. And so it talks about bringing it into the city. And let me jump down to what well, really is just fascinating to read. I'll just I, I, let's at least read verse 13. We read, and so it was when those bearing the ark of the eternal had gone six paces just six steps. That's all they took were six steps. It says that David sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep because this was amazing. This was something that he was celebrating with his whole heart that in a sense, the very thing that pictured the seat of God's government was being moved into Jerusalem. And David, a man after God's own heart, was just full hearted in celebration of this fact. Verse 14, we read, Then David danced before the eternal with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. David the king was wearing this linen ephod that's you know, often associated with, a, with the priesthood. But he's dancing in this garb that would seem unglorious, would seem perhaps by some, certainly his wife at the time, unfitting for a king. And yet he was humbling himself in this. He was willing to be seen as low because it was God who was receiving the glory in all of this. And so it says he was dancing before God. Verse 15. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the eternal with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. Again, something holy was coming into the city. Something symbolizing the very presence of God. And they ensured that it would be announced and informed to all, that all would be informed with the sound of a trumpet. So we see the trumpet associated with the presence of the divine, with the presence of holiness in the world. And then finally, the last one for this example before we take a look at prophesied events, and that is that trumpet blasts were associated with the coronation of new kings. 
One example that might come to mind for some of you is Absalom. We're not going to look at that one, but I'll talk about it as we turn to 1 Kings in chapter 1. But part of Absalom's plan, that is David's son, who ended up turning traitor against him and putting together a coup to take over the kingdom for himself, part of Absalom's plan was to have the trumpets blown everywhere all of a sudden in a way declaring him king. The trumpets were a very key part of that because they were associated with the coronation of a new king. But I'd much rather look at a more positive example, and that is in 1 Kings chapter 1. And here we have the coronation of Solomon. So without going into the details, here we have someone, Adonijah, who was wanting to take the throne, who was essentially trying to do something similar to what Absalom had done. But it was told to David, who was a very old man at this point, because David wanted, under God's own direction, David wanted Solomon to be king. And when it was told to David, he arranged this event that would make it plain to everyone who was king after him. And that was going to be Solomon. So we read in 1 Kings chapter 1. We'll read part of David's plan, verse 33. So it says, the king also said to them, that is his, his servants who are enacting this plan, take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule and take him down to Gihon. There let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel and blow the horn, that is blow the shofar and say, long live King Solomon. So we see this as a pattern in Israel that when a new regent is crowned, when a new king is made and coronated, that the shofar was blown to let people know there is a new king in town. So if you were an ancient Israelite, all of these things would have been associated with the blowing of a trumpet of some sort, whether a shofar or whether the, uh, the, the pounded metal trumpets, the silver trumpets that God dictated should be made. And we see all of these things associated with elements of the prophesied events attached to the Feast of Trumpets in some way. Now, even the Jews, even though we understand from the Bible that when it comes to events connected to Jesus Christ, when it comes to events detailed in the New Testament, when it comes to the understanding that we should have of the Old Testament because of understanding who Christ is and what God is doing overall, Paul tells us there's like a veil over their face and they can't fully understand because they don't have the whole picture. And yet even traditional Judaism does have a sense of some of these things. Traditional Judaism should not be a source for us for understanding. The Bible is our source for understanding, and God works in the church with that for understanding. But it's still fascinating sometimes how many things they sometimes land upon. I have old notes from a, a website called askmoses.com. I didn't realize Moses had a website, but apparently he does. And on that website, they actually mentioned a few things that even in traditional Judaism, they understood to be associated with the trumpet blast on what they call Rosh Hashanah. Uh, there on the website, it mentions that the trumpets are blown, the shofar is blown on Rosh Hashanah to inaugurate God as king of the universe. Interesting. It says the greatest, on the website, it says the greatest shofar recital in all eternity will accompany the arrival of Moshiach or the Messiah, which actually is true. 
It says, fear and awe of the day of judgment is associated with the trumpet blast. The future ingathering of the exiles and ultimate redemption through the Messiah, as well as the future resurrection of the dead. So it's interesting how even just given their own cultural associations with trumpets, that part of the picture of what the Feast of Trumpets does mean has come to them, but not the fullness. Again, there is a veil. Well, let's take a look ourselves at these things. Let's turn here in the last portion of the sermon to Revelation chapter 9. And I will look at some other verses as well in this final portion. So if you have a marker for your Bible, you'll want to keep it there in Revelation chapter 9 so you can... Sorry, Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8. So you can turn back there. And what I want to do is just briefly go through these particular events. Hopefully you've been studying them as the Feast of Trumpets has approached. Uh, one, of the, one of the benefits of having God's calendar is knowing when the days are coming and being able to prepare for them. And so hopefully all of us leading up to this day have taken the time we should reading about the events pictured by the Feast of Trumpets. So in Revelation chapter 8, starting in verse 1, hopefully you've studied about the seals that are open and we have the four horsemen on the scene. And then we have the beginning of the trumpets, the seventh seal that is opened by Christ in John's vision uh, leads to the seven trumpets. Is the seven trumpets. So starting in verse 1. We read, when he, that is Christ, opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now that alone is remarkable. It does remind me, this is one of the first things I'll turn to, of Zechariah chapter 2. Zechariah chapter 2, I remember the first time I read it with this in mind, it really made a difference for me. Zechariah chapter 2. And verse 13. Zechariah 2, verse 13. Be silent, all flesh, before the eternal, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. The idea that the sense that God is sitting on his throne and circumstances, whatever they are, have moved him to stand up, say, uh, to begin to take action, that it has gotten his attention and he is going to act in the world. And we're told, verse 13, be silent, all flesh, for the eternal is aroused to act in his holy habitation. I think of that when I think of Revelation chapter 8 and verse 1, that when the seventh seal is open and the trumpets are about to blast, those seven trumpets, which picture the year-long day of the Lord, that it starts off, of all things, with silence. God is about to intervene directly in human history in a way he has not done before. And so there's this respectful and awe-filled silence in heaven. And so in verse 2, and actually actually before we go there, let's go to one more verse and establish we are talking about a year. Turn to Isaiah chapter 34. The church of God has come to understand that the events of the Feast of Trumpets, the day of the Lord is about a year in length. In Isaiah chapter 34, we see this. Isaiah 34 and verse 8. 
We're reading Isaiah 34 and verse 8. For it is the day of the eternal's vengeance. Notice that was the part of the prophecy in Isaiah, in Isaiah, I think it was 66, where Jesus, or 61, where Jesus stopped, where he didn't read further. He stopped right there. So now he's going to return. This is the next part of that. It says, it is the day of the eternal's vengeance, the year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Uh, for this and other reasons, we do believe these trumpets take place over a year-long period, going from trumpet, to, sorry, feast of trumpets to feast of trumpets. Very likely, you know, God. I'll try to keep in mind God could surprise us with things, but that is is an understanding that, that we put together from from these from these pieces. In Revelation chapter eight, starting in verse two, we read, "And I saw the seven angels." who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And another angel, holding a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. Now, I'm not going to read all of these details for the sake of time, but I hope that you will. If this is the Feast of Trumpets and you have not read Revelation chapter 8 and chapter 9 yet, it's only two chapters. Find some time and do so. But it goes through the effects of each of these trumpets, and it's startling. Uh, the first trumpet blows, and a third of the vegetation is struck. A third of the trees are burned up. A third of the grass is burned up. Can you look out your window or your home and look at the vegetation around? Look at the, the forest or the woods that we see on Google Earth and imagine a third of it burned up. It mentions that a third of the seas are struck. A third of the seas become blood with the second trumpet. The third trumpet talks about how the waters are affected. It talks about a star that falls from heaven burning like a torch and a third of the waters become wormwood, something poisonous, and that men die because of how the water is made so bitter. The fourth trumpet is blown. And it says in verse 12, a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars. So a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine and likewise the night. Now I looked, verse 13, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. It is the feast of trumpets, a memorial of the blowing of trumpets. And it is directly associated with these days. So chapter 9 goes into the fifth sounding. It talks about in verse 1, I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. Tim was given the key of the bottomless pit and he opened the bottomless pit and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. And it talks about these beasts that come out. It's uh, symbolic of these armies and these terrifying weapons that cause uh, such pain to individuals. You know, it's interesting that all these terrible things have happened, and yet a special woe is pronounced about the last three in terms of what they pretend. And among them is this. It reminds me of what David said. Let me fall into God's hand, not necessarily man's. Even though God's hand at this point is turned towards vengeance, when it comes to the cruelty of men, it really does ratchet things up to a certain degree. 
Then starting in verse 13, we read of the sixth trumpet being blown. It says, The sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. And then we see this army of 200 million people. Uh, just so much going on that I do hope you will read these things. Hope you'll check into our booklet on the book of Revelation. If you haven't in a while, Revelation, the Mystery Unveiled, as well as our booklet concerning the Middle East and prophecy. They go into these things in detail. And so it's easy hearing these trumpet blasts to begin to feel somewhat sympathetic for everyone and think, boy, these humanities never experienced suffering like this on a global scale. And then you come to verse 20 of Revelation chapter 9 and read, But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold and silver, brass, stone and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. They will have been experiencing a witness. The two witnesses will be preaching. Of course, the church leading up to the final moment they can has been putting out a message, the message of warning, as well as the gospel accompanying that. And they still have not repented. And God is making plain in these trumpets, this is supernatural intervention. But this is how hardcore these individuals are. And they still are not repenting. We see reflected at least some of these, the early things we talked about associated with the trumpet. The idea of the trumpet as warning. The idea as of the trumpet as a sound of terror that would just fill you with fear. The idea of a trumpet as signifying war is taking place. But in this case, it is God going to war. And so we see these things that ancient Israelite would have associated with the trumpet having an absolutely vital place in the blowing of the trumpets on the feast or the events pictured by the feast of trumpets the year long day of the lord so let's jump for the seventh trumpet to chapter 11 chapter 11 and we will jump down to verse 15 we read here, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That is the seventh trumpet. The declaration of Christ's kingdom, the kingdom of God, has been announced. He is from this point forward the king. The devil has had his run. Jesus Christ, however, is now king at this point. What else do we know from other scriptures? The last trumpet of the seven is the time when God's people who are dead are resurrected. Those who are alive are transformed and they are gathered together. Again, reflecting an element that we have read of the trumpets, that at the sound of the trumpets, people would gather. They would gather together, the assembly, and be given their orders. Now, let's take a look at just a few verses about that. In Matthew, and I've put a marker in my Bible. Again, I advise you to do the same. Matthew chapter 24. 
Matthew 24, Jesus Christ says very plainly in verses 29 through 31. Jesus Christ says, Matthew 24, starting in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. We've read about some of that. Verse 30, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So again, it's at the sound of a trumpet just like in ancient Israel, when God's people are gathered together. It's almost a crime if it's the Feast of Trumpets and you haven't read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and read of the resurrections. 1 Corinthians, resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 51. Well, we'll start in verse 50. The Apostle Paul says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. We must be something else than what we currently are to be able to inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. If there are seven trumpets... Number seven is the last. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in Victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? If you're like me, you sort of feel like death reigns in your body at this time. My joints keep getting sore. Uh, you feel like, well, I won't say you feel like you're dying every day. That sounds very depressing, but still, death does reign amongst man now. But for the first time, a large swath of humanity will follow in the steps of Jesus Christ to the other side where death is defeated for them forever at the blowing of that last trumpet when we rise to meet Jesus Christ. Just one more verse about that, 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 13. The Apostle Paul says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brother, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God." And the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, is it going to look like some sort of angelic shofar? I was reared on 
comic books by Jack Kirby, and so I've got some very odd pictures in my head of, of this very complicated, amazing-looking trumpet. But regardless, the trumpet of God will be deployed, will be blown, and it says in verse 16, the dead in Christ will rise first. They do not rise before the trumpet blast. They rise at the trumpet blast, and they are then living again among us, transformed, verse 17, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. This happens at that last trumpet. Now, I've often thought in the past that this is the very day when Christ sets foot on the Mount of Olives, it splits and all the armies are destroyed, etc. And I was wrong about that years ago. That's what I thought, but there's so much more to happen. And I hope between now and atonement, you will study what has to take place next. Uh, I actually wrote an article about this in the 2018 Living Church News, the September-October edition, talking about from trumpets to atonement. There's so many more things that have to happen. We're transformed, we're gathered to Christ. We're with him. There's the marriage that has to take place so that we are the bride. There's the uh, vials. There's the bold judgments that have to take place on earth. There's an army. The army that Christ will destroy and that we will be with him when he does so isn't even in Jerusalem yet. In fact, they're not even at Megiddo yet for Armageddon. The Euphrates River hasn't been dried up yet. There's so many other things that have to happen, and I hope you will study those. However, the resurrection absolutely does take place, and we are at that point with Christ. In fact, if you'll turn back to Revelation chapter 11, where I had my marker, Revelation chapter 11 And we read the rest of this passage after it says the kingdom is declared. Verse 16, it says, And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come in the time of the dead that they should be judged. And you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name." small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Christ has some business to do once he is king, just like King Solomon did after he was crowned, but there were still enemies in existence. Verse 19, now here's what I find interesting. Verse 19, then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in the temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and earthquake and great hail. Here's what I personally find fascinating is at least to me the picture of David bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem with trumpets being blown. And David, David wearing something associated with the priesthood, but David himself being a king, being there with the Ark and celebrating. To me, it it very much seems, again, at least to me, a picture of this, where Jesus Christ, the son of David, has appeared and has returned and is going to take God's throne or going to take the place of God's throne, and he is king and priest. And what is there as well? The Ark of the Covenant appears as well, and the sound of the trumpet, indicating the presence of holiness, at least in this particular case. Finally, as we wrap up here at the end of the sermon, let me also say it is a time of coronation, just like we've read, because we are not only resurrected, we are resurrected to become kings 
and reign with Jesus Christ. And as kings, we will help to bring that liberty that the world waits for. Let's turn for our last passage to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. In verse 18, the Apostle Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the, with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits the revealing of the sons of God for the kingdom of God to come into existence for us to be coronated and given the opportunity to reign next to Jesus Christ the entirety of creation is waiting for that moment. Why? Because it represents liberty. Liberty, which also is associated with trumpet blast. Verse 20, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now the feast of trumpets represents this time when the future liberty of the world finally becomes possible when the right king is king and those under him truly wear the crowns of righteousness and justice because they've allowed in their lives at this time to have god work in them The birth pangs that we experience now, the the difficulties of this life, the trials we go through, the suffering we experience in the flesh as we struggle against sin lead up to this moment when we are glorified and become the children of God in full, made kings and priests alongside Jesus Christ and begin to bring liberty to the entirety of the universe. It is a remarkable day, the Feast of Trumpets, and it's been a privilege to get to talk with you about it together, and I hope the remainder of your Sabbath is a good one.